Hi there, I'm Lane, and you're listening to J.H.R. McGill Podcast, a student-led, student-run show that aims to teach you, our listeners, about human rights in the Montreal community and beyond. Thank you for listening, and follow us on SoundCloud, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts to learn more. Now, let's get to the show. Hi, and welcome to the first episode of this series on migration, brought to you by Journalists of Human Rights, McGill University Chapter. My name is Noah Kerbasa, and in this first episode, we will look at women's experiences in migration, as well as their struggles and motivations. In 2000, it is considered that 104,515 women immigrated to Canada, whereas in 2020, the numbers were 143,341. So it's possible to see a sharp increase in two decades. Women tend generally to migrate more than, than men, which is possible to see when looking at Canadian numbers. And in the world, we consider that 130 million people are migrants, which is a number that continues to grow and will continue to grow in the future because of certain issues like um, wars, crises, and the environmental problems. Women and girls represent a growing proportion of migrants as, depending on their own countries, they will seek to improve opportunities as well as their own well-being. Women are influenced by different criteria, but will mostly be influenced by the way their own countries view themselves in the world and what they are trying to find. But families sometimes tend to be a growing influence in these girls' and women's choices. When migrating, women and girls are more likely to end up in situations of exploitation or trafficking as they are in their most vulnerable state. In the 21st and 20th century, we see a wave of feminism that started in the field of history, which starts to bring more attention to women um, throughout various uh, periods of time and starting to bring light to their experiences in immigration. It's possible to see that now, especially at the beginning of the 21st century, some women historians are writing about experiences of women in the 18th century or 19th century, even to the early 20th century. So in this episode, we'll try to understand the motivations that women have in the 21st century to migrate, what attracts them, as well as the pressures that they encounter in their journey. So here we go. Our first guest is an associate professor at the Penn State University in the U.S. She's a woman from Japan who immigrated to the U.S., both for work and for studies. Hi, Yuka. How are you doing? Good. Thank you, Noah. <laughs> great to so, see you. Great to see you, too. So I'm just going to let you introduce yourself a little bit. Mm-hmm. So my name is Yuka Imamura. I'm now an um, associate professor at Penn State University. Uh, College of Medicine. Mm-hmm. I'm located in Pennsylvania, Central Pennsylvania, um, in the U.S. I have been here um, for six, seven years already, working as a faculty. And before I came here, um, me and my husband um, were at Yale University, and then did our postdoc there. And then before that, when I, you know, um, was uh, I did my first postdoc alone myself in Texas. Mm-hmm. So, and then I went back to Japan, got married with my husband, and then we both came over to Yale. That's so cool. That's really interesting. So mm-hmm. my first question for you is if you ever felt a certain pressure when moving from Japan to the US, like uh, that you had to meet like certain criteria or expectations, how did you feel when moving to the US? Um, there was not, not really much pressure at all. I mean, first time I was alone, 
And I was just so excited to, to get to, that was my also first time job. Mm-hmm. So it was really exciting to do a job, earn some money, do my own stuff, living alone myself. So that was really exciting. And then nothing really prevented me doing, you know, what I wanted. Yeah. So that, that was really good. You know, though, you know, that was 20 years ago. So there was no email, no, you know, <laughs> Skype. So it, I missed my family in Japan. Yeah. Yeah. How, if, if I can ask, how did you guys connect? Like, was it through letters? Letter. And we sometimes did expensive international phone call. Okay. Yeah. Oh, wow. All right. That must have been expensive back then. Yes. Yes. If you, now that you're looking back at your experience seven years ago when you first moved to the US, what is the type of advice you would give to yourself now if you have the opportunity? So, I, I don't have, you know, perhaps I would recommend myself to, you know, um, I was a little shy with size. So. Yeah. And then that was, that's kind of in the Japanese culture too. You know, women don't really speak up in public. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I learned, you know, coming here, you know, unless you speak up, you won't get what you want. Yeah. So I, you know, I got maybe better and better. But back then, that's actually 10 years ago when we first came to the, I mean, me and my husband mm-hmm. came to the uh, Yale. But I wanted myself to be more, you know, um, proactive to prepare. I mean, to prepare, you know, speech, um, you know, uh, practices around yeah. you know, speaking and so that's what I would recommend I mean to my own myself came back uh, you know after spending two years in Texas mm-hmm. my PI had another lab opened up in Japan so I went there so and then I stayed there for two years two years yeah and then but I couldn't do that you know casual style anymore I was like um humble Japanese little girl again yeah (laughs) and it was I hated that coming back again for a second time I felt so you know easy and (laughs) comfortable yeah at the same time I hated you know being like a traditional good girl (laughs) uh, in Japanese culture you know my mom never did um, what she wanted. She always has to be at home, you know, did every household, I mean, housework. She didn't have her own hobby or anything. Yeah. So I really hated that. Um, so is that like part of the reason why you desire to leave Japan? Is that, was that to like, mm-hmm. sort of like fulfill your real dreams and expectations? Yeah, yeah. And also, you know, in, I'm doing, you know, science as yeah. my job but I see I didn't see many um women professors mm-hmm. and, and then it's also the case I mean things they, they didn't change even I left there and then my, many of my friends are girl friends mm-hmm. in the same scientific field um didn't really excel um to the next level okay so, and you know it's still kind of, you know, guys <laughs> leading this, you know, society over yeah. there. That was super interesting. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, yeah, my pleasure. I'm very happy. 
Thank you a lot. That was great. Our second guest is a McGill University student who was born and raised in the Middle East by Canadian parents and went back to Canada for university. So I am here with my first interview. So I'm going to let you present yourself real quick. Name, um, origin, where you're from. So uh, my name is Tamar Hassami and um, I'm Lebanese, but I was born and raised in Saudi Arabia. All right. And um, do you remember when approximately arrived in Canada? Uh, I got here in fall 2019. Yeah. All right. So um, I wanted to know if you went through certain pressures in order to meet certain criteria or like if you expected something, particularly from Canada, from the country. I mean, I don't I don't think I felt um, some sort of pressure here directly but indirectly I was like under pressure just because um you know like whenever you're taken out of your comfort zone let alone the Middle East where mm-hmm. um you live in your own bubble uh you have your own customs your own traditions your own values and you come to a country that's so um open-minded and so different so culturally diversified in the sense where it's really secular you know it's not sectarian like the Middle East so mm-hmm. It was a bit different, but it was a it was a good difference. So not negative pressure, I would say. All right. And in terms of like your adaptation, like I hate the term assimilation because it has such a negative connotation. But in terms of adaptation to Canada, how did how did how did it happen for you? Like, was it natural? Was it hard? Did you feel disappointed sometimes? I mean, <clears throat> I wouldn't say it's necessarily hard. It's just it's very different. Like I remember getting here and then um, having my frosh week. And I thought that maybe I was with my best friend and she's also Lebanese, but she lived in Dubai. And so we were like, maybe we should go to frosh week, um, integrate ourselves a bit and feel like we're part of McGill here. For for instance, it's better in the sense where there's mental awareness, you know, um, mm-hmm. people really care um, what you're going through. But let's say like it was different for me if um, I would say tell someone, oh, uh, well, I had a driver in Saudi Arabia and they immediately uh, linked it to somehow being rich when it wasn't the case. Because when I grew up uh, as a woman, you know, my Mm -hmm. mom couldn't drive and my dad had work and he had to go before me to school. So Mm -hmm. we needed like I'm sure that maybe more than half of the people in Saudi Arabia have drivers just because they need to get around and they can always tell their dads, you know, to go in the car with them. So Mm -hmm. yeah, there there were just many stereotypes in general. Um, About you coming back to Canada, did, did it feel like natural to come back for university? Was it your parents that wanted you to be in Canada rather than in the Middle East? Like, how did you take that decision? I mean, my parents did the right thing by reintroducing me to Canada. So like the last time I had been to Canada before 2014 was 2007. So I came back in 2014 every summer since just Mm -hmm. so I can adapt myself to the life here, the streets, um, where to go without feeling this entire shock. Yeah. But um, my parents always told me um, you can go to you can go wherever you want, just preferably not the Middle East because it's so unstable. Yeah. So um, I chose I chose Canada, and you'd think my plan B is Lebanon, but um, it was Paris. It's just because 
like in in the Middle East, you being um, successful in your future means studying outside um, the Middle East and like going abroad. So you immigrated quite a few times throughout your life. Which part of immigration did you find was the hardest for you as a woman? And especially more recently when you went back to like Canada and like like adapting and all, like what was the hardest thing for you? I mean, I think the hardest thing for me coming here was just leaving my family. Mm -hmm. Um, Because in Saudi Arabia, there wasn't much to do. You weren't allowed to go out a lot. You weren't allowed to... um, go to restaurants with friends there was no clubbing there is mm-hmm. um there's not much to do you can't even walk around like i never walked around on the streets that's that's really frowned upon you know unless you're looking to get you know like you're looking for bad news yeah um but i think it's yeah leaving my family was definitely tough coming here that was a very tough process i was thinking if you are able to connect in canada i guess the answer is I, I guess I know the answer, but like if you mm-hmm. are able to connect in the same way here as you did in Saudi Arabia or like Lebanon or in the Middle East, and what mm-hmm. what are the main differences for you? The most important things that make you do things differently in Canada well, and in the Middle East. The language barrier is is huge, just because like I speak Arabic fluently. So when, whenever there's this language barrier, even though I speak English fluently, um, there is a whole aspect mm-hmm. that you could talk about in discussions that's immediately shut out. Her last guest is a CEGEP student born in Vietnam who recently got to Canada with her family. All right, so this uh, we're going to have another point of view from a CEGEP student from Canada. So I'm just going to give you some time to introduce yourself a little bit. Okay, great. Thank you. So hi, um, I am a Vietnamese you can call immigrants, sort of. And I have been in Canada, I think, for about six years now. I finished my high school here from secondary three to secondary five. And I have been in CJEP for three years. I took one extra year. I know the paperwork. I had to do all of the paperwork for me and my brother both in Quebec level paperwork and Canada paper, uh, Canada people, sorry, Canada paper. Uh, yeah, it's weird. Canada level paperwork. You mentioned that you took care of the papers for you and your brother. And I was wondering if you felt pressure to do it. Um, so definitely I did feel a lot of pressure, especially when I just uh, came out of a broken family. And then I have to live with my mom all of this in full time and then my mom she doesn't know how to speak English that well and back then like six years ago she didn't speak English that well almost nothing so then I really had to do some paperwork and the pressure came from the responsibility of being um, like a daughter not necessarily a gendered thing but I just happened to be like the eldest kid in the family and I spoke the like the best English and I spoke English like an, back then I possibly speak English better than my uncle and everyone else here so then mm-hmm. yeah so then I had the pressure to do paperwork um I was wondering since you speak both English and French and you have like the different um like you know like you took a different uh path than your brother Um, can you tell any differences and did you find any hardships at school 
Yeah, so I have a lot of time reflecting on this. I basically spent five years in English education and one year in French education, but I followed my brother's footstep and I could sort of experience, like relate to his experience com and comparing it to mine. So basically, when I came to Canada and I first started in French school, mm -hmm. it was definitely... Uh, interesting where I speak perfect English and English is the other language that most people here already spoke so I communicate very well with my student uh, sorry my teachers and my peers who spoke English prior because most of the kids in this class d'accueil are kids who come from French speaking countries that already mm -hmm. spoke French beforehand like in Arab country Middle Eastern so like communication for me wasn't a problem but I realized that I was very depending on English and I started to struggle with French yeah and, yeah, and this is where kind of like being Asian coming from an Asian family come into play where where like my parents kind of expect my mom expects me to finish to be able to speak French come like fully well after one year in class d'accueil, which I realize is very unrealistic. I was about to ask you if you felt certain pressures to meet certain criteria or expectations. You mentioned the one about like the language, like French. Did you meet any other like struggles in terms of like meeting certain criteria, certain expectations, like whether it's from your family or like the society in itself? Um, so it's an interesting question because I was, I was raised as like a mixed kid. So my mom's side were mixed with French and Vietnamese and my dad were mixed with Chinese, Indian and Vietnamese. So okay. I was rubbing like a very, not diversified, but a very, uh, exclusive kind of family where we're not purely Vietnamese, but at the same time, my dad is very capitalist. So he, he raised me hating my own country which is a communist country so yeah. uh, so when I came here because of how my dad raised me I find myself integrated almost too perfect in in Canada's uh, culture mm -hmm. but that post that poses as a problem for my moms and especially my the Vietnamese family that I have already here because it seems like I will, they call me whitewash. Like I became mm -hmm. like a banana where I'm yellow on the outside and white in the inside. You're still able to connect with your family. You hinted at that. You hinted some of, you know, you're answering my question with your previous answers. But if you were able to connect with your home country the uh, same way, or if you, if you have a vision that's like changed because of you being in Canada. So it's been like six years that I haven't come back to my country. So I haven't really had any physical contact with my dad, with my grandparents, which is my dad's parents. And mostly, mostly I have been in contact with them through like social media, like Facebook. That is very, very insightful. Thank you so much for your input. That was really, that was awesome. Thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast and thank you as well for the women I was able to interview for sharing their personal stories with us. If you're considering immigrating to Canada, I would recommend checking out the official governmental page canada.ca in order to gather all the information that you would need before formally applying. There is also a page dedicated to women which is called Service for Newcomer Women page that I will try to link to this episode which is helpful to provide resources that women can use um, when they're in very specific situations like abuse.
Once again, thank you everyone for listening to this episode and check out the three others by our team. Thank you again. All of our series at JHR McGill Podcast are written, edited, and recorded entirely by students. For this episode, special thanks to Basil, Jade, Lily, and Noah for all their work. To stay updated on JHR McGill Podcast, follow us on SoundCloud, Spotify, or Apple Podcasts. You can also like us on Facebook to learn more. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.